A content warning. This series deals with dark themes including child and domestic abuse, sexual assault, and content that is inappropriate for children. Please be advised. We had to be more like the men who flew the aeroplane into the Twin Towers. We should be so focused on what we're doing that nothing else matters. It was like, this is just crazy. There's a few people should have gone to the hospital a lot earlier. That, that reluctance is dangerous. It takes you too close to the line. Oh my God. I was in a cult. I'm Tim Elliott. You're listening to Inside the Tribe. This is episode two, How to Raise a Family. It's the year 2000, a new millennium, a fresh beginning. Having abandoned their former lives, Mark and Rose and their three young children found themselves embedded in the 12 tribes community at Picton, south of Sydney. In the four years they'd been inside, Mark and Rose's approach to parenting had done a complete 180. They were now disciplining their children according to the group's teachings, detailed in an inches-thick manual that had circulated around the tribes for decades. Don't treat your child as an inferior being. Let your child know you have faith in him to do better. Don't ridicule, or belittle, or scorn your child. But the tribe's attitude toward children is complex, to say the least. Children are regarded on the one hand as vessels of fragile beauty and limitless potential, and on the other as little satans in waiting, to be held in deep distrust, even fear. As the manual makes clear, children have to be watched at all times for signs of dissipation and sinfulness. They must never be left alone, lest they defile one another. They are forbidden from having toys or dolls or lollies or money, or from playing games which are seen as pointless diversions and foolishness. They must not engage in make-believe or fantasy. I remember playing with my dad's socks and pretending it was a doll. This is Tessa Klein, Matt Klein's daughter, who was four and a half when she became part of the community. Because we weren't allowed toys and, like, thinking I heard someone coming and, like, stuffing it back in the drawer with my heart completely racing at the idea of being found out to be playing. (laughs) Rules and rituals govern every part of a child's life, with kids as young as two expected to stand in silence during hours of prayers and confessions. And I think that that was just a common thing that carried through everything, like just that constant fear of being watched and like, Am I doing the right thing? Am I doing the wrong thing? Is this fine? Is this not okay? Like... Many of the rules in the manual are believed to have been written by Yonek's wife, Marsha, who goes by the name of Hamek. And she was telling that you have to be very attentive as a parent. The first signs of, uh, of rebellion, uh, you have to, you know, come down hard on it. 
And that's what Yonex says too. He he says, uh, it's actually written down in the child training uh, manual, that you have to go hard uh, in the first two years. You have to go really hard on the child, so then you can get rid of all their sin and deal away, and then you've got the perfect child. Although she had never had a child of her own, Marsha is forever on the lookout for signs of rebellion in 12 tribes' children, even before they are born. And Marsha, who's never had a child, apparently, says that... Um, when the baby is in the mother's womb and he's kicking, they're showing their, their rebellion already. That's showing their rebellion. And apparently someone told me that when uh, there was a newborn that had just been born and she was there and uh, she was already saying that this child was rebellious because they were kicking a certain way and things like that. Raising obedient children is not optional in the 12 tribes. It is absolutely central to the group's belief system which is based on a literal interpretation of the Book of Revelation. The final book in the New Testament, Revelations is an apocalyptic prophecy, a dark and mysterious text full of obscure, spooky imagery. The beast, the serpent, a seven-headed dragon. It tells the tale of Armageddon, during which the armies of the Evil One, or Satan, will gather in the Valley of Megiddo, where Yahshua will wage war against them, accompanied by 144,000 young male virgins, so pure that fire will come out of their mouths. According to Yonek's reading of Revelations, it is the 12 tribes' destiny to raise this army of warrior angels. Doing so calls for harsh discipline. Children must respond to their parents on the first command. They must reply, yes, Abba, Hebrew for father, or yes, Imma, when spoken to. A breach, no matter how slight, earns a beating with the rod, a 50 centimetre long plastic stick or thin cane, one of which is kept above the door ledge in every room. Well, it's spanking, it's beating, it's physical. Children are broken down like that. Parents are instructed on how to use the rod in monthly child training sessions. The child training manual also codifies when, why and how members should hit children, insisting that you must make it hurt enough to produce the desired result and that stripes or marks from loving discipline show love by the parent. Yeah, it's even written in the teachings that from six months old uh, you you can start spanking them. For instance, when you go and put the diaper on and the baby rolls out of the way, you're supposed to take it as an act of defiance because you want your baby to to stay there on their back. So if he rolls away, you're supposed to get your your little stick, you know, it's it's the same one but it's smaller, and go like this. I I didn't do it this early, but some people do. Yeah. Some people do, uh, even as early as four months. But they tell you to do it in such a way that they don't draw any blood. But I tell you, it really, really hurts. It's like a little whip. Mm. It's like a whip. And then afterwards they say there's a reconciliation thing where you say, oh, look, I'm sorry. After a while, that becomes a ritual too. Because I remember my, you know, my children, you know, going, I'm sorry, Abba. And they're just saying sorry because they don't want to be whomped again. He said, though you beat him with a rod, he shall not die. Michael Painter, a founding member of the group, remembers attending a teaching that Yonek held where he stood up with a three-foot-long piece of wooden dowel. He says, beat, 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 and over and over and over again. And he slapped the table. And so everybody wanting to just blindly obey 
the anointings, teachings, went home and just beat the tar out of their kids for the next few days. It was, it was the thing that really made me leave was, was the discipline, the child discipline. During his time in the 12 tribes in America, David Pike saw it up close. I mean, even infants being whipped with little, little switches. Uh, I mean, two years old and younger. I would have to oil these rods. They're like reeds, sticks. I would oil them, soak them in linseed oil so they were pliable and they didn't break or snap. They would last longer. So I would soak them in oil and then wipe them off and then I would give them to the, the mothers to use on the kids. The last time I actually witnessed this, this couple, because uh, they were in the room next door to me, switching their, their two-year-old for almost eight hours straight through the night until she ate her millet. She, she refused to eat her millet. Millet, a type of whole grain, is what the tribes in America were feeding their members at the time. It was cheap, readily available, and according to most people I talked to, largely inedible. And they said, you're going to eat this and you have to eat this. And she wouldn't, and they switched her until she finally ate it. And it almost took eight hours before she did it. Her butt was totally red, welted up. She wasn't bleeding, but I had seen kids where they had bleeding butts before. But they were they would rotate from her behind to her hand. And that I'm sure that hurt a lot too on the palm of her hand with the switch. But children weren't only beaten by their parents. Any supervising adult could administer the rod. One day I had to go out to work and my son was left with one of the the men there who was considered what we call an elder. And when I got back, he told me he had to discipline my son because he wasn't obedient. And I said, so what, what did he do? And he said, I called him to come to me and he wouldn't come. So I spanked him, which meant six times on the hand with a thin rod. And this is a two and a half year old kid with a strange man. And I said, oh, how many times did you have to do that? Oh, about 10 or 12, but eventually he came to me. The beatings were meant to be done in private, out of sight, but everyone knew what was going on. If you didn't discipline your children, then you as a parent would be subject to, um, you know, an investigation and you'd be held to account because they took it very seriously. And Sean Penny is a New Zealander who lived at Picton when Mark and Rose were members. He says that the child training manual insisted that a parent discipline the child out of love. You know, it's it never really pans out that way. It tended to come out from frustration because when your child acted up and did something, it made you look bad, you know, so you had to go and discipline your kids. But, you know, so a mother may have to discipline her children 20, 30 times a day. And um, when we lived in Picton, we had a room next to the bathroom. Uh, it was my family's room. And so the bathroom was the place that the parents would take their kids and um, and spank them. So it was right next door to us. So, you know, we couldn't help but hear the, the discipline taking place, you know, the, the screams from the kids, the, you know, the mother or the father shouting at the child. And, you know, it was pretty obvious that they weren't disciplining in love, but, um, you know, mostly disciplining in, in anger. 
and you can find this in writing in his teachings. This is Han again. That if a parent is insufficient in their job as a parent over godly children in the community, their children fall away. They don't win the hearts of their children. And if you don't do that, you will not enter the kingdom yourself. You will go to death as a parent of that child. You will. And for us, there was two deaths. One was a disciplinary place called hell, later on thrown into a lovely place called the Lake of Fire, which is eternal. We took it very seriously. We believed it when he said that. If you lost your child, then you, your, your life, your experience of the kingdom of God on the earth for a thousand years was forfeit. And you were going to be severely cooked for a thousand years. But the manual prescribed other, even more dangerous methods of control, including two practices known as swaddling and gagging. At six months, we were swaddling a baby, a baby totally swaddled, even in warm, hot heat. And if the baby cries too much, you gag the baby. They teach you. you they, they were teaching you they were, <laughs> that a baby yeah. that's six months old, that you're going to gag the baby because it's crying. And, and the thing swaddled. So that way they can command and break, like breaking a horse. You know, my little daughter, even though she was young. You know, even when she's a newborn, you know, six months old, you're gagging this baby so it won't cry. You're training a baby at that age. Rose kept the child training manual on her bedside table, treasuring it, reading and rereading it, in the hope that it would make her a more godly parent and save her children's souls. But the disciplining was causing problems between her and Mark. Got to the stage where I didn't even discipline him. I, thought, uh, I can't do this. This is ridiculous. He's becoming traumatised because it's just too many times. Because he just, just just didn't know. Even my daughter one time, I started disciplining her, and then I stopped. And I says, man, I, I didn't even want to eat that crap they fed us one time. Some carrot salad. And I said, golly, and I'm, here's me trying to force her to eat it. You know, look, you know, I was looking at myself. But, man, she went through a lot of uh, traumatising times. We'd be sitting around the table, say, having breakfast or something, and then one of the brothers or sisters going, oh, look, she's not obeying your commands. Uh, she's not eating her food. And then I, I would actually go back and pretend I would discipline, but I wouldn't, because she used to have so much discipline that I felt she was getting becoming exasperated. Mark didn't dare tell Rose that he hadn't hit his daughter. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say anything. I started not to say anything. They were now completely under the group's sway, desperate to achieve salvation, fearful of failure, terrified of being cast out. And they weren't alone. The elders at Picton constantly impressed upon all the community members the horrors that awaited them in the outside world. As Matt Klein puts it. The children growing up, they're told if, if you leave, you're going to die in a car accident or you're going to become gay, you're, you're going to go to hell or to the lake of fire. For all eternity so for them to leave they they enter a really big bad scary world that they've been told is full of evil people trying to kill them and rape them and you know use them what is normal in the outside world is, is not normal in there so your whole perceptions start to change the whole, whole way they control you is through guilt and just this dread you know everything is dreadful like oh scared you're scared of everything 
it's like your your cognitive functions are not all there. You're not logical, and it, it's all dread and fear, and your brain gets reduced to uh, that of a scared child. As one of the heads of household, Han would spend hours lecturing those who were less enlightened, turning fear and guilt into weapons. It works. I used to use it on people. I know it affects them. You've done things wrong, haven't you? And I think about it, you know, maybe they come up with a few, maybe you've got their confidence, we're talking, you say something. You have guilt about that, don't you? I mean, it's not so scripted as this, but... But guilt, you know, I can say, you have things you probably feel guilty about, and you go, yeah, we do. Because you're human. But human isn't enough. If you want to be in God's company, you've got to be like God. You've got to be perfect. Which is why Mark didn't tell his wife when he refused to comply with orders from above. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say anything. I started not to say anything, because I thought if I said anything that she'd, you know, Tell the elders, dob me in. Well, it was driving a wedge between us. And then she'd look at me in one way and I'd look at her in another way. And the elders were telling me, oh, she wasn't disciplining the children properly. Basically, yeah, it was actually driving a wedge between us. But soon, Mark and Rose would have far bigger problems. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Sydney 2000 Games of the 27th Olympia. It was September 2000 and the Olympic Games were coming to Sydney. The event was a huge opportunity for the 12 tribes, which was in the running for a lucrative contract to provide catering for the equestrian venues. But SOCOG, the Sydney organising committee for the Olympic Games, had heard some disturbing rumours about children being beaten with sticks at Picton. The organising committee asked for a meeting with Israel and another elder, Yotam. Han also went along. Big meeting and all these people. And... They're organizing the Olympics in Australia, and they want to talk to us. They say, they say you're beating your children. Is that true? And Israel's quiet, and Campbell's quiet. And I said, you know, we're just kind of old-fashioned. We, we reckon children just need boundaries, and without boundaries, they're insecure. And it starts pretty young, and they need to know that what you say is what you mean, and what you mean is what you say, and you're good for your word. So to say, to use the word beating, probably not accurate. So... I explained this to the people at so-called meeting, and, and one by one, they all started agreeing and, and saying, man, that's so good. You know, they really do need that. And they, it was like this old-fashioned sort of flavor just swept through the room. <laughs> and I thought, wow, that's pretty interesting. And we got into the Olympics, and we did the equestrian event. The sound there is a bit dodgy, so in case you missed it, Han is describing a meeting with the Olympic Games organising committee, in which he ended up justifying how the tribes beat their children. We're just kind of old-fashioned, he told the committee members. Kids just need to have boundaries, and, you know, you've got to show them you mean it. Otherwise, they get insecure. In other words, it was good for the kids to get beaten. According to Hahn, the committee members ended up agreeing with him that children needed that old-school kind of discipline, and so the tribes were given the contract. When relatives of those inside the 12 tribes heard about it, they were horrified. Matt Klein's parents immediately wrote to the organising committee. And told them that this is his mum, Marie. You, you can't let a group like that be able to advertise themselves as having been uh, purveyors to the Olympic Games. Now you must not, under any circumstances, tell them that I've alerted you to this. 
because we've heard that sometimes they would send members away and their parents would have no way of contacting them. They wouldn't know where they were because they all got a new name. When they went in, they got a new name. And a lot of people in there didn't know the original name of the other members. You know, there were lots of things that made it hard to trace people <laughs> that pl please keep this confidential. And the first thing the Olympic Organising Committee did was come out to Picton and showed them the letters and said, how are we going to deal with this if this comes out in the media? Like they weren't worried about anything other than just having the 12 tribes at their event. And I don't know why and I don't know how. The elders managed to keep the contract, but they were worried that the clients might cause more trouble. And so they decided to get Matt and his family out of the country as soon as possible. Matt didn't tell his parents until the very last moment. Do you know, they were at the airport at Mascot and they'd gone through all the procedures and they were waiting to get on the plane. And Matthew used a public phone there and um, told his father they were having this great opportunity to go to America. The situation with Mark and Rose had become equally tricky. It turned out that Rose's sister Kathy and brother Henry were coming out from Paris to visit Sydney for the Olympics. Rose saw an opportunity to show off her new life and asked the elders for permission to be able to see them. The leaders got us into this meeting and Noon looked at me like I'm the dumbest person and said, you are so stupid. Of course it's your sister. So your family wants to take you away. You Don't be so dumb, you know? Noon's fears were not unfounded. Concerned family members have been known to take drastic action in order to extricate their loved ones from a cult. In the past, some have even staged abductions with the help of so-called deprogrammers, the most famous of whom was an American civil rights activist called Ted Patrick. It's no different from Guyana, uh, Jim Jones. It's no different from Hitler. What you're looking at are uh, a mindless robot. Patrick became interested in cults in the 1970s after almost losing his son to the children of God. After researching the field, sometimes even joining cults to understand their methodology, Patrick developed a highly interventionist strategy, often kidnapping cult members and subjecting them to intense reverse brainwashing. He made front-page news for his interstate car chases, eluding both state troopers and cult leaders who dubbed him Black Lightning and accused him of being an agent of Satan. Kathy is forced into the back seat. Patrick prefers two-door cars. It's harder to escape. Today's methods are more sophisticated, not that this made much difference to the elders at Picton, who became convinced that Rose's family was coming to snatch her away. So they came up with a plan. Rose would call her sister, Kathy, and tell her she was in Boston. Meanwhile, the elders got Rose and the family on the next flight to Spain. I was instructed and I had Han next to me uh, in the office talking on the phone and he was telling me what to say. I was told to lie to my family that I'm in America, and my my sister was so pissed off. She was thinking of all this money she was losing and not being able to come here. 
And why do I have to do this four days before they're turning off at the airport? Rose's brother, Henry, decided to stick to his plans and come to Sydney for the Olympics. When I spoke to him for my story in 2013, he told me how he'd visited Picton, where he was served tea and cakes by what he described as robotic-looking ladies wearing big white skirts that reminded him of pioneers of the Wild West. The atmosphere, he told me, was really weird and reminiscent of a horror movie set, but the cakes are delicious. It's almost like a freak show to him, like seeing people, oh, God, you know, <laughs> uh, praying to God, and he was like, oh, who are these people all dressed the same? Like The way he tells the story, like a, like a freak show, you know, really scared him. Henry asked one of the elders there where Rose was. And what really scared him is that he asked, uh, was actually Hakenai, where where I am, uh, and Hakenai answered with this evil smile, you know, like, I don't know where she is, like, mm. like really mocking him, like he felt so, yeah, it was really vexing for him, you know, like, really, <laughs> yeah, he felt really rejected, and then they were mocking him, you know. He had come all the way from France to see his sister, and they don't care. And then he left some presents, but then we went, when we came back, we were told to throw the presents away, which was really sad. He had gone to a lot of mm. effort, uh, and he had beautiful things for us and uh, for the kids, and we were told to throw them in the bin. Of course, Kathy and Henry knew perfectly well that the 12 tribes was a cult. They'd done their research. I was contacted by um, Rosa's sister, um, uh, who lives in France. I this is Raphael Aron, a cult expert based in Melbourne. Raphael specialises in helping people escape groups like the 12 tribes. She was extremely concerned about the fact that her sister had become very distant and pretty well cut off from the world. And together with her children, they'd become part of a, what, what, what she was quite sure and convinced was a cult. It's the same question that most people ask, what did my sister do which got her into this mess? And, and it's a question which is probably the most universal question when working with families, and that is, well, what is it that, that got them into this? It's, it's so bizarre, it's so strange. There, there's so many things about this organisation which are so insular and so isolating. Catherine felt that she had lost her sister and that she was going down fast, and she also felt that the longer she waits, the more difficult it's going to be to extricate her. She's a very intelligent woman. She'd done her research and she had done her inquiries about what what this group was and generally she had done work into the cult scene so she uh, she was very very astute and, and very very aware of what was facing her extended family if something couldn't be done and something couldn't be done relatively soon Raphael flew to Paris I met with her we we, we spent a lot of time together uh, one of the most important things to be able to understand when you're working with somebody who's involved in a cult is you, you really want to know them as if you had met them and what's driving them to become part of this organization. So by the time I had finished um, talking with Catherine, I understood who Rose and Mark were. I had an understanding of their family background, an understanding of their belief system, of their morals, of their ethics, of the way they led their lives. And that's really, really important. You need to know your customers. And if you don't know them, you're going to, you're going to mess it up. You also need to know what are their, their, their sort of weaker points or their, their vulnerable points, which may be opportunities for entry into their lives and into their mindset? So, for example, somebody who has a belief in universalism or in spirituality, 
um, or somebody who's a big feminist or whatever it might be. Those are the sort of things that you want to know in order to be able to create an opportunity to be able to interact with them in a positive manner. Raphael also met with Henry when he came to Australia and he flew with Cathy to Massachusetts to meet with renowned cult experts Bob and Judy Pardon. So we we planned, and it was a complicated process. You know, planning is really everything when it comes to cults and when it comes to helping people. Um, You really need to get it right. And people often think, you know, well, can you do something next week or the week after? We just look at them and say, you just haven't got a clue. You're talking minimum three months, six months. As it happened, getting Mark and Rose out of the 12 tribes would take a lot longer than that. The elders had flown Rose and the family to Spain. When they arrived in Madrid, they were met by a group from the 12 tribes' Spanish community who had just taken part in a festival in the capital. The idea was that they would all head back on a bus to a rural property that the group owned in the Basque country in the north of Spain. But when everybody went to board, Rose noticed that her four-year-old son, David, was missing. She eventually found him wandering off by himself. At the time, she thought he'd simply got lost. And I understand now that my child was at a point where he just couldn't wait to escape um, the cold. But there's a lot of things that you do because you're convinced that that's the best. Because uh, you think that it's your, um, it's God protecting you against uh, the evil that is planned. The Twelve Tribes farm was in the lush green hills outside the ancient Basque town of Zeberio, a traditional farming village of cobbled streets and stone houses. The family was put up in a caserio, a lovely old three-storey stone and timber home with seven other Twelve Tribes families. One night, Yonek and his wife Hamek showed up for a communal dinner and the breaking of bread. Yonek was accompanied by a younger member of the community who hung off his every word. We actually saw uh, him talking, and there'll be someone writing down what he's saying. And recording. And, oh, and recording. They were yeah, okay. recording with tape And so I understood well, yeah. when he spoke and he was inspired, they were just uh, writing things down, and that would be incorporated into teaching. Yonek was then in his early 60s and gave off a calm sense of authority. But his wife, Marsha, wasn't at all like Mark and Rose had expected. She was quite sort of fresh when I was over there too. You know, I just remember the way she was, you know. She looked good. She kept her figure quite good and she was older and she's, she had a voice a bit like a baby. You know? Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Um, what, what's she say? Yeah, hey, hi, Katan. You know, I don't know. you just got a certain way about her, you know. Uh, uh, yeah, her, hey, you want to come in the room with a praying man, you know. She seemed equally as powerful as Yonek if not more so. Uh, she obviously was. Um, she's, you know, she's a leader. She's the only woman that's allowed in a men's meeting. So you've got to remember that because women are second-grade citizens. They won't say that. Rose had to be in the kitchen. You know, she couldn't do what she wanted in doing washing and cooking. But Marshall was allowed to go all, to all the meetings to judge mm. people, mm. analyse people. She's the only woman in the 12 tribes that can do that because... It says a woman will remain silent and submissive to her husband or to the leaders. 
One night, Rose got permission to visit her mother, who lived 20 minutes' drive away from Zaberio. So it was really freaky, uh, because they're so scared of saying the wrong thing. You can't be yourself, you know. Plus, I was thinking bad things about her, because I was indoctrinated to think there's something really wrong with my family, <laughs> you know. Because that's, that's the process of, uh, that's what they do to separate you from your family. You know, they construct this whole scenario for you. One memory from their visit stands out. Mark was upstairs trying to quieten down their daughter, who was around six months old. He was covering her mouth to stifle her screams, as they'd been taught in the community, when Rosa's mother walked in. She goes, whoa. You know, you know, she's saying, oh, you know, uh, look, she's only a baby. You know, she's saying it in Spanish. She's yeah. A, she's only a baby. Come, come on, you know, you don't do that to a baby. Mark and Rose had been in Spain for about five weeks when one night during dinner, one of the elders appeared. They just took us away. We're in the middle of dinner yeah. and they and say, oh, jump in the car. Uh, we're taking you. Well, what? Yeah, we've decided you need to go back to Australia. They were driven to Madrid that night and put on a plane to Sydney. It was early 2001, summer on the farm at Picton. Cloudless skies, long hot days. Summer was when the property really came alive, with frogs and cicadas, blue-tongued lizards and red-bellied black snakes. Down by the creek, there were water dragons and a swimming hole where community members would go on the Sabbath to cool off. Even the kids were allowed to swim there under an adult's watchful eye. In March, Rose discovered she was pregnant. It would be her fourth child. Mark was thrilled. He'd come from a family of four and always seen himself raising lots of kids. But Rose was more ambivalent. Her confidence as a mother had been severely undermined by the elders, and she was becoming depressed without even knowing it. First of all, they reduce your mind to a very... They, 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 they make you regress. And they say you have to be like a child to, to come into the kingdom. You basically come to the same level as a child. Like, you have to be obedient, do everything you're told, no questioning. And then with the black and white thinking, it hinders you from accessing the your resourcefulness, your critical thinking, you being able to see in colours, your life becomes black and white, so it reduces your, your intelligence. You become more stupid. You become more, more simple-minded. And in that state of mind, you're able to be more manipulated and scared. It's constant. You have two meetings uh, a day, and that's all people talk about, uh, seeing and being saved and... That's all your whole life revolves around. You, you, you don't see a movie, you don't have a laugh, you don't go to the pub, you don't, you don't go anywhere. Your life is all about thinking about work, 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 and thinking about your guilt. And you, that's, what, that's all your mind is full of, you know, and they remind you you have to pray, get on your knees in the morning and pray for your sins and the sins of your children. Meanwhile, the elders at Picton decided to split the community. A few senior men, including Han, were sent to live in a house the 12 tribes rented in Burwood, in Sydney's inner west. Their job was to build a cafe in Roselle. Others would work in a bakery they had leased nearby. Mark and Rose stayed at Picton. 
The elders were still afraid that Henry or Cathy or both of them could show up unannounced, demanding to see their sister, so they were put on restricted duties. Rose could still work in the tribe's mobile cafe at the Royal Easter Show, but she had to stay at the back, out of sight. Neither they nor the kids could walk anywhere near the front of the property where they might be spotted from the road. I remember we had, there was a wedding and we were hiding up on the hill. We were not allowed to be down there just because some people were there that very remotely possibly could be contacted by my family to find out where we are. Meanwhile, Rose's pregnancy seemed to be progressing well, despite the lack of maternity care. There were no blood tests, no ultrasounds, no scans or screening, just prayers, singing and some medicinal herbs. Then, at the 38-week mark, just a week or two from giving birth, Rose noticed something. All of a sudden I felt no movement, and so I was very worried. I told the, the ladies, and then they got the two of the guys, which one of them was trying to get his qualifications back uh, being a doctor, and the other one's uh, the tribal leader, Anun. And they both uh, listened with a stethoscope, and, uh, and then they talk amongst themselves, very rude, and they didn't even tell me anything. And then, uh, and then the woman told me, um, one of the, my shepherd, uh, oh yeah, um, yeah, it's the baby's um, not, not alive anymore. Rose was beside herself. It was very traumatic for me. All sorts of things went through my head. And, you know, of course you want to have your, your baby. I don't know. You know. No one could tell me what, what happens if you have a dead child, but it doesn't sound too good to have a dead body inside your body. Mark was summoned to a kahol, a council of elders and shepherds. So at that time they were saying, it's, it's my fault. It's my fault mm. that the babies die. It's because of me and my iniquity and my wife's iniquity mm. and, and I was, wasn't was obedient to the teachings of disciplining on the first command and um, wasn't disciplining my children properly, my family, I was a bad father. Yeah, this mm. is why yeah. my baby's dying, you know, it's, yeah. it's our fault, you know, that this has happened and that's the reason mm. God is not going to bless you with another child. They were five hours grilling and grilling and grilling. I, I was exhausted emotionally, spiritually, and I was thinking mm. about my dead baby that my mm. wife's going to have. Rose needed to go to hospital. She needed proper medical care. But Noon wasn't having it. When we knew that my baby was dead, Noon was putting so much pressure on me to give birth as quickly as I could. Please, we can't, we, we, we're not going to send you to the hospital, are we? Like, he was so freaked out because, but, uh, because all I was thinking, oh, no, 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 I can't do anything to, uh, you know, I didn't even know why, 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 like, I couldn't even think. Going back, go, uh, you know, with uh, hindsight, I think, well, he was worried that I would go to hospital and the hospital would, ha- you know, bring a bit of scrutiny into their malpractices and into their, uh, their lack of care, you know, prenatal and all that. You know, so he really wanted to avoid me going to hospital, so he was putting all this pressure on me. So Rose gave birth in her and Mark's bedroom on the farm to a little baby boy. Mark was there, 
well, like I saw him, you know, being very, he was perfect condition. Perfect looking baby. So, he's just blue, yeah, like he had uh, Just blue, like he... Something you know, wrong with the... Uh, um, As it happened, stillbirths weren't that unusual in the 12 tribes. During her time at Picton, Rose can recall five women having stillbirths or late-term miscarriages. According to another former member, named Kim, the same was happening in America. So regular miscarriages, I'm going to put those aside. You know, not even count those. I would say that it was the ones that were really troubling for me were the late trimester ones. So we're talking about the last three months of pregnancy or during labor or directly after, you know, the birth. I'm lumping them all together because they, it just seemed to happen a lot. And the one thing I could find in common, and I wasn't there very long, but the one thing I could find in common was that a lot of them had low uh, thyroid situations going on, which uh, third trimester, you're losing your babies, that time frame, it's, it's, it's one of the things that can happen. Kim grew up in Philadelphia and worked as a midwife before joining the 12 tribes in 1998. The leadership moved her around different communities in Virginia, Florida and Georgia. Wherever she went, she noticed the same set of health problems. Hair loss, lots of hair loss with lots of people, not just the pregnant women. So usually in pregnancy, you, your hair gets longer and thicker. There was just a lot of hair loss. And um, so that's the only thing I was able to put my finger on. Sometimes these, these children would be smaller than usual or even grow up small. Kim suspected that it had something to do with the diet. So she contacted different 12 tribes communities around the world, in Canada, Argentina, Brazil, and in America, and asked them to send her a list of everything they had eaten in the past two weeks. She found that most of the communities in the northern states of America, in Vermont, New York, had very little protein. Some were malnourished in general. They might occasionally eat fish as a Friday night luxury, but some communities were sent boxes of mostly rotten potatoes to sift through. A lot of them had a high volume of soy, tofu, soy things. If you eat it every day, three meals a day in different forms, even all of our dressings had soy in it. Millet also can do that. We would have millet for breakfast four mornings a week or something like that. And then raw, raw vegetables that are in, you know, like, the cabbage family, cabbages, Brussels sprouts, all those are good for you. But when they're not cooked, they can lower your thyroid. <laughs> Despite this, the elders resisted sending anyone to hospital. There's a few people should have gone to the hospital a lot earlier. That, that reluctance is dangerous. It takes you too close to the line. But that's how we did it. We were all in. We were all in. We actually were believing that he was going to come through. And when he didn't come through, then generally it's your fault. In all things, the Word of God takes precedence. The Bible takes precedence. And so if someone's sick, call for the elders. Pray first, then you call for the elders. This is the advice in the Bible. But the Bible hadn't helped Mark and Rose. All their prayers and confessions, all the anointing, the rules and endless work, 
All of it had come to nothing. Now all they had was a dead baby boy. So then the next day, Han and I went out and buried the baby. I had to construct a coffin for him, which I didn't like. Construct a, you know, a little box, you know, for a baby, you know, so I could bury him. So we went out and we left a little bit late because you may imagine leaving late in a car with a dead baby in the back in a box and you got pulled over by the police or something, you know, it'd be pretty weird seeing a, you know, a stillborn baby in the box, you know, and you're burying your own baby. Not going, you know, declaring the baby that the baby died to the, so the coroner could do a report. It was nothing like that. Han and Mark drove two and a half hours west to Bigger in the southern highlands, where the 12 tribes had another property. Well, we went out, uh, located a spot, which was quite away from the dwellings and things and in the middle of the bush because they got like a thousand acre property. So I'm in the middle of this forest type bush and basically dug a shallow grave. We couldn't dig very deep because it was all very rocky. And Hart says, oh no, that'll be fine, you know, you don't dig it too deep, it's fine, you know. And then bury it and put a rock over the box there's no markings or anything so as to where the baby's going to be for a grave site or anything and then made a prayer I had a prayer you know and I believe I was really wholehearted just prayed to uh, the creator that my son will be protected in in his arms you know and that's all I could do Mark and Rose had been pushed to the edge of their endurance. I felt so distraught and they're really bad. Like, I don't know, my heart had sunk right down and, and it was a terrible time. Clouded by grief and shock, neither Mark nor Rose realised that what they'd done was a criminal offence. Anyone who was involved in helping conceal a death and bury a body in an unmarked grave, was also implicated. Perhaps that was why, a few days later, a van pulled up outside the farm. They were on the run, again. been listening to Inside the Tribe, hosted by me, Tim Elliott. My co-writer and producer is Camille Bianchi, editing by Mark Wright of Term 6. This is a DM podcast production. We've also used some third-party TV and print material through the series, with details on those in the show notes. If you or anyone you know is affected by any of the subject matter raised in this episode, you can contact Lifeline for crisis support on 131114 if you're in Australia or the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline 
on 10273-TALK if you're in the US. Contact information for other services, including support to leave a high-control group, can be found in the show notes.